All right, so studying uh, the biblical value of, of faith, of trusting in the Lord with all our heart. And if you remember, I approached this study asking three questions. Does anybody, anybody remember what those questions are by any chance? Not a big deal. Okay. First question is, is God worthy of my trust? We dealt with that a little bit. The answer, of course. Yes, ma'am, I just turned it on. You weren't paying attention? So, yes, I have it on. So, is God worthy of my trust? And, of course, the answer is yes. And um, we looked at a couple of testimonies in scriptures. In fact, the Bible is full of testimonials of men and women who trusted in the Lord. And every time God had proven himself faithful, irregardless of what they were going through, irregardless of the trials and the, and the temptations they faced, God was faithful every time. Now, why do you think those stories were written for us? Huh? As an example. As an example, so we could learn from, so that we could see, yes, God is worthy of our trust. Exactly. That's exactly right. So as God, so if God go, uh, comes through for these folks, do you think God will come through for you? You think you can trust God? Sure. That's, that's, why, that's why we have the Word of God. Exactly. The other question is, uh, does God truly know better than me? <laughs> Right? Whenever you're going through a trial and you're, you need to trust in the Lord with all your heart, isn't that, isn't that kind of a question? You know, does God really know better than me or don't, don't I know better in regards to my own situation? And so we went to Psalms 147.5 and we read, Great is our Lord and of great power his understanding is infinite. Is infinite. So we considered that question and we looked at some folks' lives. We looked at the life of Joseph, right? All that he went through. And we found out that, yeah, God doesn't know what he's doing. He does know what he's doing. His understanding is, it's a lot, my understanding is finite, his is infinite. So yes, you know, God does know what he's doing, even though he may not always tell us what he's doing or why he's doing what he's doing. God does know what he's doing. And so, there again, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. That's why we have God's word. Sometimes things just don't make sense. And then the third question is, does God truly care? You know, when you're going through difficult situations or trials or whatever is going on in your life and you, and you must lean on the Lord, you must trust in God. I don't know, maybe that's, the, maybe that's the number one question a lot of folks may ask themselves. Does God really care what I'm going through? Does God really care enough for this or that? But we'll tackle that question another time. That's, that's the future. But do you remember what we were talking about now, this is what we're talking about. Is it okay to ask why? Right? You know, that second question, does God really know better? Does he really know, you know, is his under, understanding such that I can lean onto him, trusting in him and everything? And is it okay for me to ask Why? God, why? Why is this going on? What's going on here? Why is why is this happening to me? You remember the answer that I gave you? Well, that's part of it. That's part of it. I said the answer was yes and no. (laughs) Right? 
Yeah, yes and no. It all depends on one's heart attitude. It all depends on one's heart attitude. So the important thing about asking why is uh, just be careful. Never make it an accusatory why. As though you're blaming God. You know, as though you're angry or bitter at God. And we looked at three examples in Psalms about the psalmist asking why. And what we discovered was that the asking of the why of the psalmist was more or less a plea for God's presence in his situation. So when you ask why, don't be you know bitter or angry about it. Just and it's. Do you think God's afraid of any question you can pose him? No, he's not afraid of any question he you can pose him. What is God? What is God's? What is God looking at? It's, our attitude, a heart attitude, right? It's the heart attitude. So it all depends on your heart attitude. Do you remember the two things that we know for sure God is working toward? There you go, our good and His glory. And then this is where the waiting comes in. And I think that's where a lot of us have issues with is having to wait on the Lord to work out whatever it is He's working out. All right, very good. I know this is all review and stuff, but I'm just I'm just trying to bring you up up to speed because I've slept since then. I know you've slept since then. I also mentioned another individual in the Bible who asked the question why. You remember who that was? Job or Job. When I first when I was first reading the Bible, that's how I thought you pronounced his name was Job. But it's Job. Job. Job's another fella who I think if anybody in the Bible had had uh, had a right to ask God, "Why is this happening to me?" I would think Job would be a good candidate for that kind of an individual. I think he would be that good that he would be a good candidate. God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? Why why is this happening to me? So we're going to look at Job a little bit. So turn to the book of Job. It's the book after Esther and before Psalms. So when I was uh, preparing for this, I found some interesting things. Do you know what Job's name means? It means hated. It means persecuted. Uh, Job's name uh, means um, comes from a, a root word that means to be treated as an enemy. That seems kind of fitting for the book, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. It seems kind of fitting for the book. And when I, when I saw that, it kind of reminded me of a couple of passages in John's Gospel. John 7, 7, it says... The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it, that the works thereof are evil. That's, that's Jesus speaking. And uh, he's saying, you know, the world hates me because I testify against it. And um, it doesn't take any genius, but the world hates Jesus. And guys, if you're paying attention to what's going on on television, if you watch a late night talk show... Listen to some of these comedians, you know, they, they're always dissing on Jesus. 
They always are. They are. The, the cartoons like um, Family Guy and Simpsons. Yeah, I don't know if you guys watch that stuff. But you ever notice how they portray Jesus or God as some sort of incompetent buffoon? Or yeah, He's a joke. He's a punchline. He's a punchline. And I think you're going to see this uh, more and more as um, his coming draws near. In John 15, 18, he, he goes on and he says, If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. So these words Jesus spoke to his disciples. And these words apply to us today. And um, if you are indeed a blood-washed saint of God, if you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ and you're following him, you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, the world's going to hate you. I mean, you could be the nicest person they'll ever meet, but once they realize who you identify with, they're going to hate you, just for his sake. Just for his sake. I don't know how many times I've befriended folks, and then when they found out, you know, that I'm a believer in Jesus and I start sharing the gospel with them, all of a sudden, there's a shift that, that occurs. There's a shift that occurs. One other thing, the world hates the Jews, which Job is a type of. Job is a type of the Jews in the tribulation period. Anti-Semitism is nothing new. It's, it's been around since Abraham. It's been around. Why do you think the world hates the Jews? Yeah, because they're God's chosen people. They're God's chosen people. That's why. Because there's an enemy against God's people because there's an enemy against God. So that's just going to happen. So in a way, we're kind of we're like Job. We're hated. We're persecuted. What about King David? King David was a good man. Yeah. He was a Jew. Yeah. Yeah, he was a Jew. So if you hold to Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, just be just expect that. So in a way, like I said, you know, we're kind of like Job. We're hated. We're treated as an enemy by the world simply because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. That's going to happen. So that's my point, you know. If we're experiencing trouble, it could be simply because you're a Christian. It could be as simple as that. If you're you're getting the business on your job, if your employer is giving you a hard time, if your neighbor is giving you... It could very well simply be because you're a Christian and nothing more. And nothing more. Some 16 times in, in the book of Job, this question is asked, why? 16 times in the book of Job, the, the question why is asked. It's either asked of Job, or it's asked of one of Job's friends. So 16 times we read uh, where um, somebody asks why. Uh, you guys, you're familiar with Job's story, right? Okay, so I don't have to rehash all of that. Okay, so you're familiar with Job's story. 
Uh, anybody know, anybody want to guess about the period of time Job lived? Around the same time as Noah. Uh, okay. Maybe even further. Yeah. Around the same time as the, the fancy guys call it the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. More in that period. But chances are, Job knew folks who knew Shem, who came off of the boat of Noah. Very, that's very, very possible. Because Shem lived a long time. Or is it Shem? Yeah, Shem lived a long time after, after the flood. That's one of Noah's sons, isn't it? Yes. Thank you. Sometimes my brain doesn't work very well. Uh, so Job lived during the period of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and, and, and Jacob. And it's believed that uh, even two of his counselors, Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite, had very close connections with, with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In uh, Genesis chapter 25, 1, then again, Abraham took a wife and her name was Keturah. So this was after Sarah had died, and she bare him Zimran, and Jokshan, and Medan, and Midian, and Ishbak, and Shua. Shua. So Shua is born to Abraham's wife Keturah, and uh, who, who, who he married after Sarah had passed away. And so he gave, she gave birth to a boy named Shua, who is the father of the Shuites, of which Bildad is one. So that's very, very possible that Keturah, Abraham's wife, may be Bildad's great-grandmother. So there's a, that's kind of an interesting connection. And they knew Job. And then Genesis 25, 13 and 14, it says, um, And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names according to their generations. And he lists all these names, and I'm not going to uh, try to pronounce them. I'll butcher them. But the one I want you to pay attention to is verse 15, Hadar and Tima, Jetur, Naphish, and Kedema. Tima, a son of Ishmael, is the father of the Temanites, of whom Eliphaz is a Temanite. So it's possible that Eliphaz is somehow related to, is related to Ishmael which was the son of Abraham and Hagar. That's a possibility. That's a very good possibility. Another possibility as far as Eliphaz is concerned is found in Genesis 36:15. These were the dukes of the son of Esau. Who was Esau? Jacob's brother. Thank you. I thought everybody fell asleep on me. Yeah, so Esau is, is Jacob's brother. So these, are the, these were the dukes of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn son of Esau, then Duke Teman, Duke Omar, Duke Zepho, Duke Kenaz. So Eliphaz may be the firstborn son of Esau. Maybe. It's in that same time period. It's in that same time period. In either case, all of these men, including Job, lived during this period of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. Something kind of interesting about Job the man as well is um, he's also in this patriotic uh, uh, period. And uh, there may be a possibility that 
Job is related to Esau. Possibility. Esau, Jacob's brother. In Genesis 36, 31, it says, And these are the kings that reigned in the land of Edom. That's where Esau you know, set up his, his kingdom. Before there reigned any king over the children of Israel, and Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, and the name of his city was Dinahab. And Bela died, and a man by the name of Jobab, the son of Zerah of Bozrah, reigned in his stead. In his stead. Now, Edom is the place where Esau settled, and Uz, U-Z, is where Job lived, and guess where Uz is located, or Uz, right there in Edom. So that's where Job lived. He lives right there where Esau set up his place. Uh, in, in Uz, or Uz, in the land of Edom, where the city of Petra is. Anybody ever hear of Petra? A lot of Bible scholars believe that that's where the Jews are going to go for, the remnant are going to go for safety when the Antichrist tries to wipe them out. Revelations chapter 12 speaks of the woman where the wilderness, she runs into the wilderness and the wilderness protects her. And there's other passages in the Word of God that kind of leads to the idea that that's where the remnant's going to run. They're going to run into the land of Edom, into this region of Petra, and that's where, they're, that's where God's going to protect them and, and feed them and keep them, that remnant, during the last three and a half years. But it's also possible, getting back to Job, it could, it, it's possible that Job may have been a king. He may have been the king, this King Jobab here. <laughs> In Job uh, 1.3 it says, His substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 she-asses and a very great household so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. Now who is, who is greater than a king? Who, is, who has this kind of property? A king. Okay, Jeff, so what? There's a lot of rich men that have that kind of... But they're not necessarily kings. And I would agree with you, except for this verse here in Job 19.9, where he says, He hath stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. Now, who wears a crown? A king. And who has earthly glory? A king. So it could be this Jobab of Genesis chapter 36 could be, could be Job. He may have been a king. He may have been a king. Oh yeah, yeah. He had a big house, lots of property, lots of servants. So it's very, very possible that this this was Job. Very influential, very powerful, very wealthy man. Now. You know, I say all that because historically Job was a real man. He lived in a real place on earth. And he did suffer a major setback in his life. Job was a man just like you and I. Of course, you ladies, you understand what I'm saying. He He was a person. He was a real live person just like you and me. He believed in the one true God. In fact, God himself considered Job a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. 
So we would say Job was a godly man, a good man, right? Certainly a man we would think didn't deserve what Job got. But let me ask you a question. Do bad things happen to good people? Yeah, all the time. All the time. Doctrinally, Job is a picture of the Jews during the Great Tribulation. Of course, John writes about that in uh, Revelations. Daniel alludes to it in his book. And uh, there's a lot of parallels between Job and the, and the Jews in the Tribulation. One of them, of course, we, I just mentioned it about him being an ooze or us, however you want to pronounce that. In the land of Edom, the very place that uh, Revelations 12 alludes to, that that's where, the, that's where the remnant, the Jews, are going to run for safety, where God's going to protect them. We know that Job sits in misery for seven days. How long does, seven, how long does the tribulation period last? Seven years. Seven's big in Job. The number seven shows up in Job quite a few times. As an example, Job 5:19 through 20 says, He shall deliver thee in six troubles, yea, in seven there shall no evil touch thee. In famine he shall redeem thee from death, and in war from the power of the sword. That's Job 5:19 through 20. So, what happens in the seventh year of the tribulation period? Jesus comes. Right? Jesus comes and rescues the Jews because the Antichrist is going to try to wipe them out. So Jesus Christ comes in the seventh year to save the Jews from the power of the sword. Who, who will hold the power of the sword at that time? But the Antichrist. Right? And he does, he does keep them. He delivers them through all that period of time. He preserves a third of the Jews. The placement of the book of Job in our Bible follows the book of Esther, where a Gentile queen is, is, is um, taken away, followed by a wedding feast and a Jewish queen coming on the scene. Now, I've, heard, I've read some folks who say that that taking away of the Gentile queen is a type of the rapture of the church. Then you have the wedding feast, and then you have the Jewish queen, which is, of course, Israel, coming into her kingdom. It's interesting. It's interesting. But there's a lot of things there in Job that relates to the Jews during the tribulation period. But what we're looking at... Is all right. So there's there's a historical application. There's a doctrinal application. What's the third application? Devotional, personal, spiritual. That's what that's what we're wanting to look at. How's all right? How does all that apply to me? What is the personal application in trusting in the Lord with all our heart in regards to someone like Job? And it comes down to this: Is it okay to ask why? Is it okay to ask why? Why is this happening? Why is this going on? You know, I've read about three or four different commentaries on the book of Job. And almost to a commentary, they always teach Job from the angle 
of um, answering the question of why do the godly suffer? So that's always that's been the premise of that of those commentaries that I've read. Uh, there's a couple of commentaries I read that didn't go that angle at all. He goes through the fire. He does go through the fire. He sure does. But it's interesting, even though these commentaries seek to answer the question, they say that Job answers the question, why do the godly suffer? They really know, they don't answer the question. And guess who else doesn't answer that question? God. God never gave Job a reason why he went through what he went through. He just reminded him of Exactly. Exactly. Job never gets an answer to the question of why is this happening? Why is this happening? Job was a good and upright man, but yet it still happened to him. It still happened to him. What you do read when it comes to this asking of why, what you do read is this. The perennial issue that often comes up in the book is that his friends are convinced that Job is guilty of some heinous sin and he needs to confess it and repent in order to get back into God's good graces. That was their approach. That was their approach. That was their counsel to Job throughout the whole book. Those big, long, flowery speeches. That's what it all boils down to. Job, you're a sinner. You need to confess your sin. You need to repent. And then God will bless you. But he stayed like a rock. He stayed like a rock. He never moved. And that's exactly right. Because Job, what you do read about Job as he goes through various stages of despair and frustration and depression but he still holds on to his integrity and he still holds on to his faith in God that's what he does and I think that's the biggest challenge we face whenever we're faced with a situation is holding on to our own integrity and holding on to our own faith in God holding on to our own integrity not blaming God not finding fault with God not casting dispersion on God's character it's so tempting to do that we may not mean to do that but that's what happens sometimes or to hold on to our trusting in God when it appears as though we're, we're, we're at the end of our rope and God has abandoned us or something like that we kind of talked about all that hold on to our integrity hold on to our faith in God that's, that's really the biggest challenge that we often face if you remember, I said, when you, if you're going to ask God why, be ready for three things. Either not receiving an immediate answer, right? Or receiving an answer that you may not like. <laughs> that happens a lot to me. Or never receiving an answer until you see him in glory. 
And then you go, oh, I get it. I see now why this was going and that happened here and this was going on there. Because God's not obligated to explain himself. Is he? But by golly, we want him to. We want him to. And like Sherry alluded, like she said, when God finally does speak to Job, he doesn't give Job an explanation, does he? No, what he does is he reveals his glory. He doesn't give Job, you know, the explanation of how the devil played into this or even how even God allowed the devil to do what he did. He doesn't explain himself, but what he does do is he gives God or he gives Job a a little piece of his glory, a vision of his glory. You know, when Job was going through this, he desired to speak to God face to face. Job 23.1 says, Then Job answered and said, Even today is my complaint bitter. My stroke is heavier than my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would order my cause before him and fill my mouth with arguments. And you read that about Job several times. Oh, if only I could have an audience with God and let him know that I'm innocent. Let him know what's going on. Let, as if God didn't know. Right? Have you ever found yourself in that place, though? If only I could just talk to God. You know? Like Moses. Yeah. And it's funny, too, because um, when God did give Job an opportunity to, to say something, what did Job do? didn't say anything well he did but he didn't say what he said he didn't go to God and order his cause before God did he <laughs> he was he was humbled if you remember I made a statement when we ask why we best be prepared to have our perspective radically altered for how we perceive things to how God sees things and that's exactly what happened with Job his whole perspective was radically altered when he, when God came to him and revealed his glory to Job. He had his perspective radically altered. Job didn't order his cause before God. When God revealed to Job his glory in creation and his power through creation, what did Job do? Job 38.1 well, this is, this is God speaking to Job. He says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee. And answer thou me, Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. So there God is, and he's the one asking the questions now. You think he's going to ask questions when we get to the judgment seat of Christ?
Does God know best? Is his infinite, is his understanding truly infinite? Does God know what he's doing? God never answers Job. Why would happen happened? Instead, he presents to Job his glory in creation. So from Job 38 to Job 41, you get this huge narrative of creation. And all the while, God is asking Job these questions, these questions. Can you answer me this? Can you answer me that? Can you answer me this? Can you answer me that? No. No, I can't answer. I can't answer. You know, what Job, you know what Job's answer was when, when he went through all of that and he saw all of that and he was asked all those questions? Job 42.1 Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Alright? His power, his infinite understanding... Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not things too wonderful me for me which I knew not. He says, Here I beseech thee and I will speak. I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Verse 6, Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Did he repent of dust and ashes because of the sin that he was being accused of? No. Because he realized where he stood in the presence of an almighty holy God. It's that contrite, humble spirit that God looks for. Yes, ma'am. Talking about like you question God. I guess I am of the opposite. I'm like, am I worthy? Am is that messed up? No, no, it's not messed up. (laughs) As long as that I am I worthy doesn't turn into um, self pity. Yeah, I'm going to go to the garden eat worms type (laughs) attitude. Yeah. We're not pushing it that far. Yeah, yeah. Because there are people who will take it, you know, I'm absolutely of no value, I'm, I'm no worth, I'm worse than dirt, and that's where they live. But yet, if, if, if a person is of no value, then what does that say about God's redeeming love and sending his son to die for them on the cross? What have you just done with that, with that uh, loving act of God? You've cheapened it by, well, yeah, it's good for everybody else, but as far as it applies to me, it doesn't apply to me. So you've taken that wonderful gift of God and you've just kind of null and voided in your own life. But yet, every individual is of value in God's eyes. That's why he came and sent, that's why he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for, for us. For God so loved the world. Am I living on the world? Am I a part of the world? Yes, I am. So no matter how valueless or how rotten I think that I am, I know that nothing can separate me from the love of God. Does that make sense? Yes, thank you. Okay. I'll replay that. I had a couple. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, it's it's the contrite, 
humbled heart before God. And yeah, blessed is the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. Yeah. So that there is an aspect of, yeah, I'm not worthy, as long as you don't turn it into some sort of self-pity. Because I know a lot of people who fall into that, and it just wipes them out as far as anything, doing anything for God, serving God, or anything like that. Yeah. And God doesn't want that. Because you ultimately are saying you're not worthy to serve him then, and you're taking up a fight. Yeah. That's what the devil wants you to believe. That's exactly what the devil wants you to believe. If that's his avenue, if that's his way of taking you out, he's going to use it. Okay, so I'm getting a little ahead of myself. The first time um, the question why is asked, and it might address a little bit about what you're talking about. Um, We read it's Job. Job asks the question. And turn to Job chapter 3. Come on, Jeff. Job chapter 3, verse 11. This is Job speaking. He says, Why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? Why did the knees prevent me? Or why the breasts that I should suck? For now should I have lain still and been quiet. I should have slept. Then had I been at rest. This is what you read about Job the man as you progress through the book. His his finite reasoning trying to grapple to understand what's going on. Uh, the emotional roller coaster ride of despair and frustration and depression. The battle of the will to maintain his integrity and not to speak evil of the Lord. You read this about Job as you go through the book of Job. This is a real man grappling with real issues. And he's trying to hold on to his integrity and he's trying to hold on to his faith just like a man passing through great tribulation. Okay? So essentially what Job is asking here is why was I ever born? Why was I ever born? Kind of reminds me of the children of Israel besides the Red Sea, you know. Here comes Pharaoh's army bearing down on them. Here's the sea before them. They're thinking, okay, this is it. This is it. And so they say to, say to Moses, is not this the word that we t- did tell you in Egypt, saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians that we should die in the wilderness. That's Exodus 14. Now wait a minute, guys. What just happened? Did you not experience the, what was it, ten plagues? Didn't you see that? And were you not safe in the land of Goshen while all this was going on? And now here you are at the, at, at the coast of the Red Sea and you, you forget all of that, don't you? You forget all of God's past blessings and the way he's worked in your life in the past because of your current situation. Isn't it funny how your current situation seems to wipe all of that out? It does every time almost. We forget about God's past blessings and God's past deliverance and how God has come through. I mean, how many times, well, it was a God thing. It was really amazing. And then all of a sudden we get into a situation and... All of that evaporates. It all goes away. Did God change? We get so forgetful. 
We forget the past deliverances, experiencing the present troubles. Job lost all his wealth. He lost his property, his family, his health. There's no denying that. The only thing that was spared was his life. And in his eyes, that was a miserable, miserable life. Job 3.24. Look at Job 3.24. To me, this is interesting. Job 3.24, he says, For my sighing cometh before I eat, my roarings are poured out like the, wa- like the waters. Look what he says here in verse 25. For the thing which I greatly feared has come upon me, and that which, wa- and that which I was afraid of has come on to me. I was not in safety, neither had I rest, neither was I quiet, yet trouble came. To me, that's an interesting little insight. For the thing which I greatly feared has come upon me, and that which I was afraid of has come unto me. Though Job was a perfect and upright man who eschewed evil, who feared God, could it be that his faith needed refining? Could it be that his faith needed to be perfected? He feared the Lord, but yet he was still fearful. He was still fearful. We're that way. We're that way. How many times have we heard Ron pray, Lord, help our unbelief? Right? Yeah, we give lip service that we believe God... But if we're really honest with ourselves, there's still that fearfulness. Or am I the only one? Remember, our faith in God's eyes is precious. And if you're a Lord of the Ring fan, no, it's not like Gollum precious, okay? 1 Peter 1.7 That the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Sometimes the reason why God turns the heat up on that crucible is because our faith needs to be refined. There's an impurity there that God wants to remove. And like, the master, and like the master refiner, he knows just the right amount of heat. Just the right amount of heat. Now, I've read commentaries where they were really hard on Job. Now, this man, you know, he should have, you know, this and that, and he should have, you know. No. To me, this is real life. <laughs> To me, this is real life. This is a man who's experiencing hard times. And he's trying to work it out. He's trying to hold on to his integrity. And he's trying to keep his faith in God. And he's got these counselors telling him stuff that he knows isn't true. And no matter what he says to them, they're not changing their mind about him. This, this is real life to me. I can so see this happening today. 
And I mean, it, Job one twenty two. You got to remember this in all in, in all this. Job sin not, nor charge God foolishly. That's a man. That is a man. Throughout this entire refining process, Job never foolishly charged God with any wrongdoing. He didn't know what was going on. He didn't know why it was going on, but he never charged God foolishly. That's a man of faith. More often than not, when someone experiences a tragedy, how come God tested him? <laughs> I'm getting to that. Even though, um, you know, someone, uh, more often than not, when someone suffers a great tragedy like that, what, what is almost the first thing that might come to their mind? It's all your fault. Or why did you, why me? What did I do? Devil to the man. You know, so what are you doing there? You're questioning his character. You're questioning his wisdom. I totally get it. I do. I totally get it. They tend to blame God or curse God for their hut catching fire and burning down to the ground. That's, that's the counsel that Job, Job's wife gave him. Job 2.9 says, Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. What a help me. Now remember, she suffered the same loss as, as he did. Didn't she? The devil to do Yeah. She suffered the same thing that Job did. So I'm thinking that's the tact she took. That's the tack she took in this course. She certainly proved no support for Job. Job later on said in Job 19.17, My breath is strange to my wife, though I entreated for the children's sake of my own body. In other words, he, you know, he, he looked to his wife for support, even, even, even bringing up the loss of the children. You know, let's share this together. Let's go through this together. But it says that he was, he was, they become, uh, uh, my breath is strange to my wife, which means to become estranged. You know, when a couple becomes estranged, they, se- they go separate ways. You know, I've seen that happen in marriages where the couples become estranged and they go their separate ways. I, this is what happened with Job and his wife. She went this way and he went that way. Of course, Job rebuked her. He says, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall we not receive evil? And all this did not Job sin with his lips. So he even looked to his wife for support. I mean, yeah, Job cursed his day. Why was I ever born? But he never cursed God never curse God the first time you read of an accusatory why question in the book of Job is from one of Job's counselors, one of his buddies Job 15.9 if you're there in the book of Job Job 15.9, this is Eliphaz 
He says, What knowest thou that we know not? What understandest thou which is not in us? With us are both the gray-headed and very aged men, much elder than thy father. Are the consolations of God small with thee? Is there any secret thing with thee? Why doth thine heart carry thee away? And what do thy eyes wink at? That thou turnest thy spirit against God, and lettest such words go out of thy mouth. What is a man that he should be clean, and which is born of a woman that he should be righteous? You see, what Eliphaz was accusing Job of is, you're guilty of some sin, Job. That's why you're suffering the way you're suffering. Why don't you just confess it, get it out in the open, repent of it, and then maybe God will have mercy on you. So the very first question, very first accusatory question asked was by one of Job's friends. That's a good friend. That's the kind of friend you want in a a bad time. Instead Instead of being comforters, they were the accusers of their brother. Remember, they're kind of related here. Who else is an accuser of the brethren? At one point, Job becomes frustrated with his friends. He says in Job 13.4, he says, Ye are forgers of lies. Ye are all physicians of no value. Oh, that you would all together hold your peace, and it should be your wisdom. <laughs> what is it? The fool uttereth all his mind? He's saying, shut up! You're doing me no good! You're making it worse. It's like a quack doctor. He doesn't know what he's doing and it seems like the cure is worse than the, the hurt. They began with this premise of Job's guilt and they rode that dead horse all the way through the book of Job. All the way through. Job 19.19, 19, he says, All my inward friends abhorred me, they whom I loved are turned against me. My bone cleaveth to my skin and to my flesh, and I am escaped with the skin of my teeth. That's where that saying comes from. Have pity on me, have pity on me, O ye my friends, for the hand of God hath touched me. He's not denying that God is involved here. Why do ye persecute me as God, as though you're God, are not, and are not satisfied with my flesh? He's looking to his friends for pity and all they're doing is giving him grief. There's a counseling point. If you've got somebody going through a hard time, don't be a grief to them. Sometimes all people need is somebody to listen and show compassion. He certainly wasn't getting it from his friends. He says, instead of condemning me of something for what I'm not guilty of, why don't you look to comfort me in my time of affliction? Job defends himself in Job 9.29. He says, if I be wicked, why why then labor I in vain? Why do I hang on to my integrity? Why do I hang on to my faith? If I wash myself with snow water and make my hands never so clean, yet shall thou plunge me in the ditch. And my own clothes shall abhor me. He keeps proclaiming I'm innocent and they keep shoving him back down into that ditch of guilt. 
For he is not a man as I am that I should answer him, and we should come together in judgment. Neither is there any daysmen betwixt us. Who's our daysman? Our mediator. Jesus Christ. That's what he's wanting. Let him take his rod away from me. Let not his fear terrify me. Then would I speak and not fear him. But it is not so with me. So Job is saying, hey, I'm not stupid enough to keep this appearance of self-righteousness up. If, I'm so, if, I'm, if I've got sin in my life, God sees it. I can't hide it from God. He's going to call me on it. But he says, I'm not guilty of any sin that you're accusing me of. That's where he held on to his, integri- his integrity. I'm not guilty of any of that, that sin that you accuse me of. He never denied having a sin nature. He just denied uh, committing some specific sin. Now I did this summary, and it's just there's a lot here. Okay, it take me another five years, but I did this summary about Job's as one of the folks that if he had a right to ask, if anybody had a right to ask why, it would have been him. To just bring up this point, I mean, even the strongest of us, even the strongest of the saints that I know of, that I've ever read of or known of personally, when life doesn't make any sense, I think it's totally natural to ask why. I don't think God's afraid of that. I don't think God's afraid of that. I don't think it's sinful to ask God why. I don't. Again, what is it? It's the hard attitude. Why are you asking why? Are you accusing God? Or are you honestly seeking his face in the matter? And are you willing to receive whatever it is he answers you? I think sometimes that can also be an issue with some of us. We don't like to receive whatever it is that God gives us. So we have to trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our understanding because God does know better even when we don't understand why it's happening. As long as we don't become accusatory and believe that we can run our lives better than God can. There's a lot of folks out there that believe that. Let me read you what Carl Sagan said, once said. And I bet he wishes he could take these words back. But he says, if God is omnipotent and omniscient, omnipotent, I say that word wrong every time. (laughs) Omnipotent and omniscient. He says, why didn't he start the universe out in the first place so it would come out the way he wants? Well, he did, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Why is he constantly repairing and complaining? No, there's one thing the Bible makes clear. No, it doesn't. The biblical God is a sloppy manufacturer. He's not good at design. He's not good at execution. He'd be out of business if there was any competition. This is a lost man speaking. And he doesn't realize that it's God's competition that messed everything up in the first place. 
right? But that's that's the way he views God. God's not smart enough to run the universe. Man is. And we're doing a good job. <laughs> but that's what we hear from scorners and skeptics. If God is so good, then why is there this going on and that going on? I answered a fellow one time. I probably didn't, shouldn't have answered it this way. But there was a period of time I just said whatever was on my mind. There was a period? There was a period. <laughs> anyway, I had this one person come up to me and ask, you know, well, if God is so good, then why is there evil in the world? And I told him, I said, well, one of the reasons why there's evil in the world is because you live in it. <laughs> It's true. It's true. It's, there's evil in the world because I live in it. But sometimes God's people who are hurting also ask that same question. Now there's a difference between a scorner and a believer who's hurting. The scorner, they're going to believe what they're going to believe. A believer who's suffering, don't be like these guys. Show compassion. Pray for them. Pray with them. Because that's what they need. They need to have that perspective of God's wisdom and God's love refreshed in their hearts and minds. That's the difference between a scorner and a believer who's truly hurting. And when we are compelled to ask why... Don't ask why for the sake of God, explain yourself. But ask why and, okay, Lord, what is my place in this? What is it you're looking for in me in this? What is it that I need to learn in this in order that I might be able to glorify you and even take what I learn and use it for the good of somebody else? Because that's why we go through what we go through. That one day somebody else is going through the same thing, you can go to that person and say, hey, this is what God showed me. Like Joseph, we wait. We hold to that promise that God has given us, and we wait for God to fulfill that promise. We wait for God to fulfill that promise. Isaiah 55, 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So by faith we stop demanding that God explain himself. Who am I? I'm just dust and ashes, right? No, we look to God for that Wisdom, so that we can take what we are experiencing, bring glory to God, and like I said, help others. Help others. Gwen Arney just recently passed away with cancer. Did he let that cancer get him down? Yeah, he did. He had bad days. He had bad days, but he held on to his integrity. 
And you know what he did with that? Whenever he heard a church member, I don't know if he called your husband or not, but whenever he heard of a church member who had cancer, Gwaine, when he was strong enough, would call that person and encourage that person. Yeah, that's the way to go out. That's the way to finish your race. That's the way to finish your race. If we are to experience peace in the midst of our troubles, then we've got to come to a place in our hearts that we trust that the Lord is working each and everything out for His glory and for our ultimate good. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. Amen? Holy Father in heaven, we come to you now, Lord, and honestly, we don't know and we can't see as you see and understand as you understand, so therefore we must exercise our faith in you, and that's what pleases you, for without faith it is impossible to please God. So I pray, Father in heaven, as my brother Ron would often pray, Lord, help our unbelief, because there are times that we are challenged, there are times that we just don't understand and we we get confused, but we know that we have a reliable God that can be trusted in. We know that we have a God whose understanding is infinite. We know that we have a God who loves us and has our ultimate good in mind. We thank you and praise you for your son, Jesus Christ, who is the proof of your love. His name we pray. Amen.